The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Taiwan goes to the polls in just over a month. This is an election that could have wide repercussions, given the island's status as a potential flashpoint in the coming years. The incumbent president, Tsai Ing-wen, is coming to the end of two elected terms, meaning that she cannot run again. Her party's chosen successor is William Lai, Lai Ting-te, who is the current vice president. For most of this year, he has been facing off opposition from the Kuomintang, the biggest opposition party in Taiwan, and the Taiwan People's Party, a third party, led by the charismatic Ke Wenzhe. Lai remains in the lead with a month to go, but polls show that the KMT is only a few points behind, meaning that an upset is still possible. Since Taiwan became a democracy, it's the KMT that has been the party calling for closer relations to China, and Tsai and Lai's DPP that has been more pro-independence and pro-West. Given Beijing has shut off the hotline with Taipei in protest of the DPP since Tsai was first elected in 2016, if her successor wins in January, relations with Beijing are unlikely to get better. But how can the KMT justify closer relations with China when it seems like the world is in a much different place compared to 2015, the last time they held the presidency? Joining me to discuss all these issues and more is William Yang, a Taipei-based freelance correspondent who has written for Voice of America, Deutsche Welle, The Guardian and The Times. William, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Thank you for having me, Cindy. So should we start with the front runner in the race, the Democratic Progressive Party's candidate and Taiwan's current vice president, William Lai, Lai Xingte. Can you give us a pen portrait of him as a person and a politician? So, yeah, Lai is a doctor turned politician who has been around in Taiwan for almost 20 years. He first uh, ran as a legislator and then became the very popular mayor in the southern city of Tainan which is often considered as this holy ground of democracy for Taiwan's very short democratic history. And then because of his extreme popularity after eight years as a mayor, he then uh, was appointed as the premier when the current president Tsai Ing-wen came into power in 2016. But during his tenure of the two years as premier, there were some controversial policy making, especially in labor rights related policies that uh, forced him to step down after a very hard loss during the 2018 uh, local election. Then in 2020, during the last presidential election, he originally challenged Tsai Ing-wen in the party primary. But after losing it, they were able to join forces and then won that landslide victory, which uh, scored the highest uh, vote winning in Taiwan's election history, more than 8 million votes. And then, you know, I think after four years as the vice president, he really got a chance to close up, observe and learn about 
national level policymaking and also accumulate a lot more international experience, interacting with visiting uh, legislative delegations from different countries and representing Taiwan to some important uh, overseas trips. So it was basically widely agreed that he would be the successor for Taiwan. And uh, undoubtedly, this time around, there was no party primary. He used to be considered as someone uh, that favors Taiwan independence. In 2017, he famously said this line that he is a pragmatic worker for Taiwan independence, which created a lot of havoc and also concern uh, both in Beijing and Washington. That's why when he first announced his candidacy, there was some skepticism and also, I think, a suspicion about him in Washington. But I think as time goes on, he's been, I think, uh, molded into this uh, politician that is becoming more, I think, a uh, towing the line that is being mm. basically favored by Washington, but also the international community, which is sticking to the status quo, refusing to recognize Taiwan independence and uh, promising to follow Taiwan's foreign policy uh, platform. So I think in the end, uh, he's earned the trust uh, in Washington and international community. But in Beijing's eyes, he remains a very problematic figure, even more problematic than Taiwan, because I think they always... Uh, take his past rhetorics and also his past record mm. coming from the more, I think, independence-leaning faction within the Democratic Progressive Party as a warning sign. So in the lead up to the election over the last few months, we've seen repeatedly that Beijing is uh, characterizing his campaign as a campaign that's going to push Taiwan towards the path of uh, seeking independence. And this has been the line of narrative that Beijing is doubling down, uh, even after, I think, the presidential races has been confirmed uh, in late November. So right now, basically, he is the target of Beijing's uh, attack and their narrative, basically saying that the election of him as the president then would lead to the heightened uh, possibility of war across the Taiwan Strait. Mm. And the more pro-Beijing candidate is the candidate for the main opposition party, Hou Youyi, and the main opposition party in Taiwan now is the Kuomintang. Tell us about him. So Ho is a former police chief turned politician mayor. Also, he's had a long uh, career as a police uh, officer at several levels, uh, led a very controversial operation that forced one of Taiwan's uh, democratic activists and writer in the 1980s to commit suicide. And that had become one of the biggest stains in his uh, political career. But other than that, he's been known for being a very careful, conservative, but also reliable politician. Had a very, I think, uh, smooth rise through the ranks, first as the deputy uh, mayor in New Taipei City. And then after the mayor at the time uh, stepped down after the term limits, uh, he was elected with a large uh, margin of winning of the votes. And throughout his mayorship so far, he's been known for being a very uh, good executioner of policies and also a very reliable mayor that's really been able to execute policy promises and has been earning the praises from voters, I think, across political landscape, which would be considered as uh, unprecedented for a KMT uh, mayor. But I think something that is a little bit different about him compared to traditional KMT candidates for presidency is that he is someone from a Taiwanese uh, root. 
rather than from you know having some connection to the uh, mainland China. So uh, during his political career, he's never really been heavily leaning towards the shared uh, history, family uh, ties to China, making him sometimes a little bit of a, I think, target of uh, skepticism among the more, I think, China friendly China, I think, leaning faction within the KMT. And I think that's why in the beginning after his nomination, even though uh, there's the consensus uh, announced by the party that he is the best candidate for, to represent them, his approval rating was uh, hovering around the uh, high, you know, below 20, and then uh, wasn't really able to get the breakthrough. But uh, after they announced that he's pairing up with a former media, com- famous media commentator who is known for his very pro-China, pro-Beijing rhetorics throughout his career, Zhao Shaokang, his approval rating has really increased now that he's hovering around the low 30s. And it's exactly because I think uh, the consensus is that the vice president uh, candidate is making up for his shortfall, which is the inability to win the trust among the very traditional deep blue pro-China voters in the KMT. Now that uh, we're seeing, I think, a return of the support from these supporters. So we're also kind of like starting to see him feeling a little bit, I think, more emboldened and confident about saying things like, if he is elected, he's going to pursue peace with China, but at the same time, not trying to break away from the United States. But definitely he is... uh, framing himself as the candidate that is able to at least hold regular dialogue with Beijing and resume the dialogue that's been cut off uh, by Beijing since 2016. Mm. So that's really interesting. So we've got Lai, who has uh, been throughout the election campaign pretty much the front runner. He's he's the successor to Tsai Ing-wen, the current president. We have Ho on the um, KMT side, who has been bobbing along a little bit. But William, is the problem with both of them is that they have a slightly a boring demeanor, boring reputation? And is that why we have this kind of dark horse candidate, Ke Wenzhe, this third person that we also need to talk about, who has been actually doing surprisingly well throughout the majority of this campaign? So, so tell us about Ke. Right. I think it's, it's exactly like you said, because Lai and uh, Ho has been much longer in politics and they are known for repeating, parroting party policy lines, very bad at communicating policies in a very innovative way and also uh, a- appealing way. So Ko Wenzhe is this unorthodox doctor turned mayor uh, of Taipei City. He rose to the scene in 2014 during the mayor election, won the Taipei mayorship, working with the DPP at the time. And then just quickly, because of his unorthodox and blunt style of politics. He's not afraid of commenting on any issue, even if it's like one of the most controversial issue. And he's often able to come up with these very unique phrasing or framing of certain political phenomenon that people will find it very, I think, uh, refreshing in a way, because he does not speak the traditional political language. He knows how to... Can you give us an example? uh, So, for example, during this presidential campaign, he described the state of uh, cross-strait relations as uh, a prostate cancer. 
he said that the current state of cross-strait relations is uh, like a prostate cancer, which means that because usually prostate cancer uh, could only be discovered at very late stage, which is usually at the terminal stage. And he's basically, he's a doctor. So he likes to use medical terms and medical (laughs) uh, uh, references as a way to, you know, draw the interest of the voters, especially the younger voters. And so at the time, it became the topic of the week. Uh, everyone's like, oh, covering that. Even some people went to you know, interview prostate specialists and then asked them, how do they think about this comparison? I mean, this is something that usually normally you won't see in a Taiwanese uh, presidential campaign trail. But because of these very out-of-the-box references, examples, and also proposals, policy proposals. So he's been able to really dominate the online uh, social media volume and also traction, even in the traditional media. Anything that he said then would become the topic that will be asked to the other two candidates. So it's almost like he is the topic and agenda setting machine for this whole presidential campaign. But the downside about him is that while he's very good at having all these media attention, his party is still very young, four years old. Uh, he does not have a lot of uh, influence and also uh, support outside of Taipei City, which is where he was a mayor for eight years. And that was immediately reflected through the overall support for his party. So oftentimes, his personal support would exceed the support rate that his party gets. So often, mm. uh, we are almost seeing this very unique campaign that a one politician, one man campaign leading and trying to increase the uh, likelihood and prospect of his own political party. And I think uh, people inside Taiwan and also outside of Taiwan has find that fascinating uh, to observe and also see how he's been, I think, faring in this whole uh, campaign so far. Mm. And the way that the Taiwanese election works is that the president is directly elected rather than the leader of the winning parliamentary party, right, as it is here in the UK. So voters vote for a party, but they also vote for a president of their choice. So theoretically, it is possible for Ko to be the president, but not have the control of the legislature, which is also going through the election in January. Right, exactly. You know, that's always been, there have been some cases of minority government here. Uh, the party that controls the executive branch somehow did not have the majority inside the legislature. And what usually happens then is like a lot of delays of policy proposals being passed and uh, legislated, and also a, a much, I think, chaotic uh, domestic agenda throughout the entire term of the presidency. We had that basically from 2000 to 2008. That was the first time when the DPP came to power. And it was just a period of time where we're seeing a lot of tug of war between different branches of the government. Mm. And William, is it fair to say that in Taiwanese elections, China is the issue that looms largest when it comes to all of these debates? Yes, I think China is the factor that will be, it's kind of like the fault line in, you know, I think uh, splitting the voter base. Uh, It's always been like that since the first uh, presidential election in 1996. During that year, prior to the election, there was that very famous uh, 
Taiwan Strait crisis where China tried to fire a few missiles uh, as a warning sign uh, to try to uh, scare off the election, but it went ahead. And so ever since then, basically the relationship with China and how political parties are able to handle and position themselves uh, on that relationship has become the defining moment and also issue that will determine uh, how much of a support they would get. Because I think uh, Taiwan has been unfortunately, living with this uh, imminent and looming threat of China, promising, threatening to take it back, unify with it for decades. And as I think the Chinese government becomes a lot more aggressive in terms of its actions and tactics in the last four to eight years because of a government that they feel like is pushing Taiwan further away from China. So this uh, discussion and topic of how the government in Taipei is able to manage the relationship with China then would become more of an exacerbating factor in a presidential election, especially towards the later end of a presidential election. So like right now, you know, we're down to about a month away. So the Every occasion, every campaign occasion would uh, somehow be centered around the rhetorics about China from all sides. And how are the three men respectively portraying their stance on this issue? You've already talked a lot about uh, Lai Tinta, William Lai's position. He used to be relatively radical, saying that Taiwan should have independence. But now he's more toe in a tie when uh, fudge, which is very smart in my view, which is to say we don't need to declare that Taiwan's independent because Taiwan's already independent. So thereby not touching that red line of Beijing's. But what about for KMT's Hou Youyi and Ke Wenzhe then? What are their positions on China, especially for the KMT? I would think that after the Hong Kong national security law, it's quite a difficult argument to make to Taiwanese voters to say that they can still kind of <laughs> coexist with China. Or, or Maybe that narrative is not so hard to make. Right. So in fact, I think because of the war of Ukraine that broke out last year, this so-called slogan of a choice between war and peace has been the main narrative that the KMT has been putting forward uh, since we enter into the campaign season in June. They are framing themselves as the only political party in Taiwan that is capable of bringing real and sustainable peace to across the Taiwan Strait because they are indeed the only political party that has so far since China lifted the zero COVID uh, policies been able to send delegations to China. There have been mm. the visit by the former President Ma Ying-jeou uh, back in April, and then they also had their deputy chairperson leading delegations to China already twice uh, this past since 2023. And so I think these are vivid examples that they can at least put forward as see uh, China welcomed our delegations. Uh, no other political party is able to achieve that. And at the same time, because of the ongoing, I think, international discussion about the imminent or uh, potential Taiwan Strait crisis, and also the discussion inside Taiwan about potentially toughening up and strengthening Taiwan's defense policies, it has made this argument of a choice between war and peace a lot more vivid and I think uh, influential and impactful. So they have been, uh, you know, I think pointing to the ruling party as the one that is going to just uh, last year during the local election, they were saying that if you vote for the DPP, you are sending your sons and daughters onto the battlefield. 
And that worked really well. They won landslide across、mm. Taiwan. And this time around, they're continuing to doubling down on similar choices, but basically is like the choice between war and peace. So, unlike the previous eight years where they were kind of like caught in this identity crisis about how do they reposition themselves in a Taiwan that seemed to be Having no room for any sort of like discussion about peace with China because of the external factors and also I think the、uh, overall loss of I think、uh, appetite for the ruling party's own doubling down of the threat from China, so that you know it's recreating a room for the KMT to、uh, reinvent themselves a little bit. But if you look deeply, they did not really reinvent themselves. They're、uh, basically sticking to their very original line. It's just the warning Ukraine and also the international concerns about the Taiwan Strait crisis is offering them a new framing of this. Whereas I think Koenja is this.、Uh, Candidate that has been trying to position themselves himself as the alternative choice between the two main parties, you know. So it, on the one hand, he's like he will continue down the efforts of、uh, beefing up Taiwan's own defense capabilities, but he's also going to show a little bit more goodwill to China, you know. So slightly like I think、uh, getting the good points from both sides and. Seem to position them himself in the middle and say, "I'm the, your best choice because I am able to achieve both." But what is really lacking, obviously, is the credential that he's really able to have meaningful dialogue with Beijing. He's never, you know, so far been able to have any interaction with China. Other than the so-called Twin City、uh, Forum, that's a tradition between Taipei and Shanghai, and that was because he's he was the mayor of Taipei, so that's、uh, within his power to do so. But other than that, after he stepped down as the Taipei mayor, there is no concrete evidence to prove that he is able to achieve what the KMT is able to achieve, and also he's not able to prove that Beijing is willing to give him some. I think benefit of doubt, and also give him some、uh, benefits of、uh, having at least a chance to meet any Chinese official. And at the same time, his proposals about beefing up Taiwan's、uh, defense capabilities is not so different from the DPP, and also lacks details about how he's、mm. really going to execute it. So, in a way, voters will wonder: Are they voting for someone who really has a concrete plan, or is it someone who's just trying to be an opportunist? Yeah, and I, I want to talk about Cohen's current. Polling numbers, which have really plummeted in the last few weeks, in a bit. But but before we do,、um, William, I, I also just want to talk about the Chinese intervention or rather influence in this campaign as well. As you say, it's been showing that it can do business with the KMT by inviting the former KMT president Ma Ying-jeou over, as well as other delegations. But interestingly, it has also been pressurizing. People so that they don't split the pro-Beijing vote. Can you tell us about the experience of Terry Goh, who is the boss of Foxconn, that iPhone supplier? Right. So Terry Goh is this、uh, iPhone manufacturer owner for many years, and then four years ago he tried to run for president, but that didn't work out. This time around, he tried again, lost the.、Uh, Primary inside the KMT broke away and vowed to seek an independent、uh, candidacy, and he did、uh, collect enough signatures to pass that threshold. But once he announced that, suddenly China started announcing an investigation into the Foxconn operation inside China, and the they set the date of the end of the investigation the day before 
the presidential election. So clearly is a pressure move to try to push him off. And really, since Beijing launched that investigation or announced it, we never know if the investigation really went ahead. Terry Go cut down his public appearance, become very, very low key and was trying to avoid answering thorny questions that he would usually be very happy to just uh, express his views on anything. So uh, that, I think, changed the landscape and dynamic a little bit that, you know, also, I think, on the other hand, shows that if you are someone who has deep interests inside China, for example, you are a businessman with a lot of uh, operations mm-hmm. inside China, that would become your biggest weakness when you are trying to pursue a presidential election in a way that in Beijing's view would be counterproductive to the goal of you know, dethroning the ruling party and uh, installing a more China-friendly regime in Taipei after January 2024. So in the end, Terry Go dropped out. It worked, I think, China's, uh, you know, strategy. So this is, I think, the sticks that we're seeing. And I think it may not, in fact, work for most of the politicians. Terry Go is a very unique case because he is having billions of operations inside China. That's why he is also vulnerable to China's influence. But the rest of the uh, candidates on the ballot right now, at least, are no one is a major business owner with big operations inside China. So at least that layer of the influence is not going to work. But at the same time, we have seen efforts from Beijing in recent weeks to use their state media outlets and also spreading some cognitive warfare uh, around some uh, domestic issues here in Taiwan to try to undermine the ruling party's credibility and image. So one example is that Taiwan and India is now in the process of trying to sign an NOU to have more Indian migrant workers to come and work in Taiwan. And the Taiwanese government claimed that days after this news came into uh, reported by the media, there were immediately some rising online discussions and concerns about uh, the safety of Taiwanese people if there are more Indian men inside Taiwan. You know, they immediately connect that to Indians stereotype that women will be unsafe because uh, they will be raped or sexually attacked. And then a lot of discriminative uh, comments then surfaced. And then there was even a protest in front of the presidential office just last uh, Sunday. And the Taiwanese government later came out with a whole timeline saying that these online debates and discussions, in fact, uh, surfaced after some China-linked accounts and outlets uh, started to spread this kind of rhetoric. And then so that created these concerns within Taiwan. And then that led to all these uh, public debates and also demonstrations. They framed this as an example of China's cognitive warfare to try to influence Taiwan's domestic uh, public opinion. That's so totally fascinating. And it's also fascinating that Terry Go was essentially punished not for being too pro-West, but for being too pro-Beijing. And he risked splitting the pro-Beijing vote, especially at a time that the KMT wasn't doing very well in the polls. But, William, the KMT has now been doing better in the polls since the end of November because there's been a slightly dramatic development at the end of November where Kuo and uh, Hou Yuyi look like they might be getting a coalition packed together. But that blew up spectacularly. So what happened? <laughs> so, you know, a lot of the details of their 
closed door negotiation, we would never be able to know. But on the public surface, uh, their disagreement is extending from the so-called how do they use public opinion poll data to determine which the candidate from which party should be the presidential candidate on the joint uh, presidential a ticket. So that basically stalled the initial agreement that they would be working together. And then both sides started to trade accusations and also suspicions about, you know, like the other side being untrustworthy and uh, walking away from the deals. But in the end, I think essentially is that both sides are unable to lay their, set their egos aside. And then so that's why, you know, like, in fact, this whole discussion and drama was never meant to really work out in the end, but for the sake of, I think, uh, hijacking the media oxygen, they are trying to drag it all the way until the last day, which is why on uh, right. November 24th, we finally saw the three pairs of candidates. But the insider talks were that, in fact, both parties were already having, you know, been preparing about potential vice president candidates of their own for weeks because they knew that the likelihood of really settling all the differences and agreeing to work together on terms that both sides can agree on is so slim. And so in the end, you know, we are seeing that Coenger, I think, lost the best opportunity for him to be in at least a government, you know, like the ruling government, because his political party is just too young. And on his own, mm. he is unable to really uh, gather enough votes, even if he tried to steal votes from both sides. And so after the each of the three political parties announced it and registered their candidacy, what we are seeing in the opinion poll is that his uh, support rate has been steadily dropping, because I think some of the undecided voters then now realized that in a three-way race, the better chance is for them to go for the larger traditional parties. I think that's just a natural progression. And at the same time, I think, like we briefly mentioned before, because the presidential candidates from both the ruling DPP and also the main opposition KMT are not charismatic politicians that are just able to rile up public support and attraction. So this is probably the first presidential election in Taiwan's history where the vice president candidate is becoming the main talking points and media attention on the DPP side is this very extremely popular former top Taiwan envoy to the U.S., uh, Beijing Xiao. She's been known as the cat warrior from Taiwan during the time that the wolf warriors from China is being, you know, it's very famous around the world. And at the same time, on the other side is a longtime media commentator uh, hosting, you know, one of the most popular political talk shows in Taiwan for decades as the vice president for the KMT. And both are very, very eloquent, having the ability of uh, creating and setting the agenda. So right now, the interesting thing that we're kind of seeing is that a lot of the times the hot topics that are trending in the media and on social media are in fact surrounding these vice presidential candidates, mm. which I think it's a little bit of an interesting uh, situation. And also political commentators and experts are also agreeing that the two vice presidential candidates will be playing a key role of hoping to carry the, their pair through, boost their support rate among, you know, especially undecided voters. Mm, so just voters and journalists hoping to grasp charisma and personality wherever they can find it, basically. Right, right. 
William, can we talk about the voters as well? Is there a bit of a generational divide between those who would support the KMT versus those who would support the DPP? I think for people here listening in the West, it might seem pretty obvious that you would vote for DPP, right? Because that's the party that's going to stand up against China, this bully on the doorstep. And so how is that playing out in Taiwan? Is there demographic divides uh, such as age or gender that we can talk about for this race? So... You know, traditionally, the generational divide is usually, I think people above the age of 50 usually will have the higher tendency. And if they're living in northern Taiwan, they will have a higher tendency of voting for the KMT because they grew up in the era where cross-strait status quo is just the norm and no advocating for Taiwan independence is just not a possibility. And they also prefer that status quo just being the way it is because that's how they always know, you know, Taiwan's status as it is. And then as you go south, further south in Taiwan, uh, basically that's where a lot of the voters will automatically be leaning towards the DPP because they speak the language that the DPP is using, which is Taiwanese. And at the same time, a lot of them are not, you know, coming from the background of having strong family ties uh, with China. And so that naturally uh, pivots them towards the idea that Taiwan is a sovereign state of its own. And I think uh, traditionally voters younger than the age of 40 grew up in the era where Taiwan is either transitioning into a democracy or is already a democracy having its own presidential election. So they cannot imagine a world or a proposal where both sides of the strait will be signing some kind of like agreement that would then, you know, allow China to rule over Taiwan in even, you know, a proposal like the motto of Hong Kong, which is one country, two systems. They just cannot accept that. And the fact that Taiwan could possibly lose its uh, sovereignty would just sound nonsensical to them. So uh, traditionally, they would be leaning towards the DPP. So this time around, largely, we're still seeing more younger people under the age of 40 more likely voting for the DPP right now, whereas the older, more, I think, risk-averse generation, maybe above the age of 50, 55, uh, would be leaning towards the KMT, especially those living in northern Taiwan. But because after the DPP has been in absolute majority control of both uh, branch of the government for eight years, there's starting to be some frustration, discontent among younger voters, especially those who felt like the DPP government is spending way too much oxygen and time to frame this China threat while, in their opinion, not doing enough to improve the domestic situation, especially, for example, the stagnant wage for young people, the ultra-high housing prices, and the unresolvable, I think, housing issue. So these very livelihood-related issues and the inability and the stagnation of these uh, situations, then I think are reflected to the younger generation that, in fact, both of these traditional major parties are just equally bad on solving the pressing issue that's actually facing us. It's not China. It's, in fact, our livelihood. How do we, you know, uh, be able to guarantee to pay for a house and buy a house? And at the same time, how will we be able to earn enough money to raise our next generation? And so that's why they decided that maybe in this uh, election, they should be given the outsider the third party candidate, a chance. And that's why I think at least 
right now, still, we are seeing that Ke Wen-jeou is still the leading candidate among voters under the age of 35 because of the fact that a lot of the young people are simply just too frustrated. They are not making their voting decision purely based on very rational judgments, analyzing the policies. They're just I think out of anger, frustration, thinking that they should be giving an outsider a chance and maybe it could really change Taiwan. And that's what Ke Wen-jeou has been doubling down on as well, presenting himself as this, like the only possibility for Taiwan to reinvent it itself. He's been uh, trying to communicate that message to the domestic audience quite a bit over the last few months. That's fascinating. And yes, I mean, I think no party has had more than two terms in the presidency. So Taiwan has already had two terms. So it would be unprecedented for the DPP to have a third term in that role. So, you know, the protest vote for people who see them as the establishment, as the incumbent vote may win out in the end because of these domestic issues, as you say, William. I find it fascinating, the similarities and the differences between the Taiwanese election and, let's say, elections in the UK or the US. We've talked about domestic economic concerns. That's very similar across the world, I suspect, uh, where that has a huge influence on what people vote for. But you've also talked at length about the China issue, and that's clearly not an issue that other democracies really have to think about. But what's also struck me is that when I was in Taiwan earlier in this year, it's just how socially progressive and liberal Taiwan is now as a place. You know, gay marriage has been legalized and Taiwan has even had a non-binary cabinet minister. But there was a remarkable lack of a culture wars going on. So it wasn't as if the DPP was pushing this, what we would call woke agenda. It's just that it doesn't seem to be a fault line in Taiwanese politics at all. Would you agree with that? I mean, other older generations or more rural generations, are they worried about the progressiveness of Taiwanese politics? Yeah, I think maybe because there's Taiwan is a pretty secular society. There's no strong, for example, religious-related conservatism taking place. We're rooting in Taiwan. So even though during the campaign of legalizing same-sex marriage, there were some attempts by church groups and conservative religious uh groups trying to ratchet up this concern of passing legalizing same-sex marriage is going to completely destroy Taiwan's social fabric. But in the end, that was overpowered by this, I think, overall consensus that respecting human rights and Taiwan's history, long history of fighting and defending democracy should be in line with the progressiveness that's involved with legalizing same-sex marriage. I think that's why we are not seeing like what you said, you know, uh, in a lot of the other Western countries because of the religious conservatism that is, I think, uh, leading, dominating a lot of the conservative agenda in those countries in the U.S., in, I think, uh, you know, many uh, European countries. So that's why I think Taiwan was actually able to segregate these pursuit of progressive issues and agenda away from national level elections. So I think Mm. Taiwan is a very unique case, but I think the factor is, I think we have to just keep in mind that religion is not something that is tied with any political party. It is not the central value that's being upheld by any major political party at all. Religion is one of the most diverse area where you see, you know, Taiwanese people have all sorts of religious affiliation and religious belief. And there's no one religious group that is powerful enough to be able to actually even put together 
a political party. Mm. And William, just finally then, with just a month to go until Taiwanese people go to the polls and we find out who the next president and the next ruling party is, what is your best guess on what you think will happen? So right now, if the trend of the presidential election and, and the polls are uh, steadying, which seems to be the case in several different polls, the numbers are not too far apart anymore. We are likely to see the uh, DPP winning the presidential race. However, it's very likely that they would be a minority government because on the legislative side, the KMT is now at least having the highest uh, support. They are trending and leading in some battleground uh, districts uh, for the legislative races. And on the party vote uh, overall support, they're also leading. And there's somewhat of a more broader consensus among the opposition parties between the KMT and TPP that they are somehow still at least able to find a very shaky but common ground to try to prevent the DPP from gaining the majority inside the legislature. So if that's the case, then we are likely going to see a minority government where then I think one of the leading candidates to be the next speaker of Taiwan's parliament is a very, very flamboyant and also populist style politician. The previous uh, presidential candidate from the KMT actually is being bid and tapped as the most likely uh, speaker of the parliament. If that's the case, we are likely going to see a lot of back and forth and uh, political stagnation policy being stalled because of these uh, pure political, I think, uh, jabs being given to each side and not enough, I think, reasonable discussion within Taiwan. And I just kind of wanted to wrap it up about, I think, no matter who wins the election, I think this is going to be a big test for Taiwan's own path, especially how does Taiwan position itself in the Taiwan Strait, in the Indo-Pacific, but also internationally? There's going to be, I think, some repercussion on the foreign policy front if it's not a DPP government because of the fact that both the opposition parties are already very clear that they want to recalibrate the balance between leaning too much on highlighting the importance of uh, building ties with the U.S. and the West and the democracy versus, uh, you know, like pulling away from China. So at least with this rebalancing, recalibration or the attempt to achieve that, there will be, I think, some level of international implication of the outcome of this election. And I think another thing is just that none of the three presidential candidates have the same level of international experience as Tsai Ing-wen. And so I think mm. it will take a while for the whole world to learn about their style, their character, and how to work with them. Even if it's a DPP government, I think the differences will be a lot less, obviously, because uh, the there's going to be a lot of continuity. But if it's not a DPP government, then the policy continuity would also come into question, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. William Yang, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. 
So thank you so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.